0: And equally obvious is the fact that the apostles have a unique authority and inspiration that is unrepeatable. They are foundational. They say things that are written down and become Bible. So we have capital P prophets, call them apostolic prophets. And we have small P prophets, call them born-again, spirit-filled, Bible-reading, Bible-speaking Christians. Now, some are more gifted and some are less gifted, as we would expect. But all, in some sense, are capable of speaking a spirit-directed word. Done. I have no idea how anyone could read the book of Acts and argue with that. We're looking at that in this very passage. Agabus is not an apostle. But he is a born-again Christian. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he's able to speak a word of specific encouragement that results in Christians in one place sharing generously with Christians in another place. That's not a new revelation. That is just very helpful guidance in a
1: time of particular need. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. There is a sense in which every truly born-again, spirit-filled person is a prophet. There is a sense in which that is true, and there's a way of talking about that and thinking about that that is very unhelpful. We don't want to say more or less than the Bible is saying here, so we want to be careful. Here to walk us through this issue today is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet.
0: Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 11. This chapter continues the story of the conversion of Cornelius and his family and the theological and missiological implications of that incredibly significant event. We pick up the story at verse 1. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. We should probably be careful here not to overinterpret that phrase, the circumcision party. In Greek, it literally says, some from the circumcision, meaning some folks from the Jewish part of the church. Well, to state the obvious, everyone but Cornelius and his family at this point Belong to the Jewish part of the church. Later in the New Testament, that phrase will come to refer to Jewish Christians who are opposing, or at least reluctant in embracing, the influx of Gentile converts. At this point, though, it should probably just be understood as some Jewish Christians had a question. It it, it means here that Peter was being asked to explain to the Jewish home base in Jerusalem what exactly had happened and why it was that he felt authorized to take this massive step in bringing a Gentile family into the church without having them pass through the artifacts of Old Testament Judaism. That's the issue. Peter brought this family directly into the church through a side window, you might say. They they didn't come in the way everyone else had and The way that they assumed everyone else would. They didn't convert to Judaism first. They just went from God fearing pagans straight on into the heart of the church. How does that work, Peter? How did you get there? That's what they're asking. Verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in this order I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time, From heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. so Peter begins to walk them through how he came to the conclusion that he should not allow the Jewish food laws to keep him from preaching the gospel to these Gentiles. He tells the story of his threefold dream coupled with the arrival of the messengers, and the spirit himself telling Peter to go with them, basically. Peter has figured out that the clean and unclean animals in the dream represented clean and unclean people, according to Peter's own categories. The sheet obviously represented the church. The dream was telling Peter that it is God's will for there to be Jews and Gentiles in the church and that he should no longer make any distinctions on the basis of ceremonial and ritual law as in the Old Testament. Again, David Peterson says here, the threefold vision given to Peter offers a new perspective on the way in which scripture is to be interpreted and the gospel is to be preached. The provisions of the Mosaic law for cleansing and sanctification are fulfilled in Christ. And thus the cultic restrictions excluding Gentiles from the community of God's people are no longer applicable. Closed quote. Peter walks the leaders in Jerusalem through the process whereby he came to this conclusion. Verse 12 goes on to say, These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send a Joppa, bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak... The Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Peter is impressed by the extraordinary similarity between this event and the events that happened on the original day of Pentecost. He compares this to what happened in the upper room. This was just like that. And and that tells us that this wasn't the sort of thing that normally happened when people came to Christ. It wasn't usually accompanied by everyone speaking in tongues. There is a noticeably and remarkably significant set of circumstances attending this particular conversion. John Stott says here, this was the Gentile Pentecost in Caesarea, corresponding to the Jewish Pentecost in Jerusalem. I think that's exactly right. Thanks be to God. Peter is starting to connect the dots here. He says in verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then To the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So, Peter was convinced, and the church in Jerusalem was convinced too. God had done a new thing, a thing they didn't expect. But there was no doubting that he had done it. Therefore, there was no reason to oppose it. So, they stopped questioning it, and they started praising God for it. They said clearly, then to the Gentiles, Also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That is a watershed declaration in the history of the early church. It will take another couple of chapters for them to work out all of the implications, but this decision turns the prow of the ship away from Jewish exclusivism and towards a multicultural movement centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't complete the turn, but it starts the turn. And so we rightly identify this decision as a seminal moment in the life of the church. Now, the actual phrase that is used is also very interesting. God has granted the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. The Bible speaks about repentance in curious and even seemingly contradictory ways. Peter can command people to repent like he did in Acts 2.38 when he said to the crowd in Jerusalem at the end of his sermon, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's an imperative verb there. That's a command. Repent. That's something that you can ask and even demand that people do. And yet, here, the Bible speaks of repentance as a gift, as something God must give. So, which is it? And of course, the answer is it's both. I'm reminded of St. Augustine's famous prayer, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. We need help from God to do all the things we should. That is true from the beginning all the way to the end of the Christian life. Thanks be to God. Verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now that the Jerusalem leadership has understood and endorsed this new work of the Spirit, the focus of Luke's narrative is primarily upon the spread of the gospel to other places and other people. Here, We see the gospel spreading out from Jerusalem into regions north and east, and we see it crossing cultural and linguistic barriers, and the Holy Spirit was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, we don't know how many years are being covered by verses 19 to 25. Ancient historians did not care as much as we do for precise and detailed timelines. They tended to move more from theme to theme and development to development. But if the martyrdom of Stephen and the move of Saul from Tarsus to Antioch can serve as references, then these verses cover roughly 13 years. Paul is a seasoned preacher and teacher now. He has been preaching the gospel in his home province for about 10 years, over which time apparently he received the synagogue beating on five different occasions, So obviously his pattern at home was the same as the pattern he adopted on his later missionary travels. He began preaching the synagogue and then when kicked out, he would preach in the open air or perhaps in a house belonging to another believer. So having proved himself at home, Barnabas now recruits Paul and installs him in Antioch where he becomes one of the main preachers and leaders there. Luke tells us that it was at Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians a word which literally means little Christs. Now, we think that this term was originally intended as an insult, but that it was quickly embraced as a badge of honor by the early believers. And who wouldn't want to be known as a little Christ, right? That's a wonderful title. We sometimes hear people today who want to distance themselves from that title. They say, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. Well, To state the obvious, I'm not sure there's any difference between those terms, and I don't think there's any great advantage in the change of terminology. Maybe what we need to do is just do a better job of looking, talking, and acting like Jesus. The early believers looked like the person they were following. That's the point. And that remains a worthy objective for us
1: today. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here because you hit on something there that is actually a bit of a pet peeve of mine it feels to me like we waste a lot of energy trying to come up with user-friendly terminology when, in fact, as you point out, what we really ought to be focusing on is actually looking like Jesus. So help us out with that. How can we do that? What could we do as Christians that would actually resemble the person of Jesus Christ?
0: Yeah, it's a great question.
1: And, and like you, I don't think there's really any value in playing games with the terminology. I think those efforts totally miss the point. Yeah, and they're confusing to our neighbors. I remember when it was popular about 10 years ago to say, I'm not religious. I'm in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, to most people in the world, Christianity is a religion. What matters is whether it's a good religion with a bunch of people in it that love and follow Jesus, or whether it's a bad religion filled with people being jerks and making excuses. Right. Preach it, brother. <laughs> I know. Listen, I told you this was a pet <laughs> peeve of mine. So back to my question, what can we actually do to look like Jesus?
0: Well, in John 1, 14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So I imagine it, if we were people characterized by both grace and truth, that would go a long way toward reflecting and recommending Jesus
1: Christ. I feel like there aren't that many of us who are good at both of those, though. I, I know some really great grace Christians, and I know some really strong truth Christians, but it's rare to find people who are good at both of those. Why is that?
0: Well, I suppose the short answer is that none of us are Jesus, so we all fall short to varying degrees of his perfect standard. Okay, fair enough. Now, obviously, that's not an excuse. With the Holy Spirit inside of us and the Word of God open in front of us, we are supposed to be changing by one degree of glory to the next into the same image as Jesus. So we need to be making progress here. We need to be doing better than we have been doing on
1: this, that's for sure. So why does it seem so hard to keep these things together, particularly in our day and age?
0: Well, I think some of that has to do with what's going on inside of us, and then some of it has to do with what's going on outside of us. Inside of us, we're all inclined to see ourselves in the best possible light and to see others in the worst possible light. So we need to repent of that, and we need to pray for more of the spirit of love to fill our hearts. The Bible says it's a good thing to be able to overlook the mistakes that other people make. You can see that, for example, in Proverbs 19.11 and in 1 Corinthians 6.7. And the Bible says that we should be willing to forgive other people their sins. Jesus, after teaching on the Lord's Prayer, even says that if we don't forgive others their sins, then neither will our Heavenly Father forgive our sins. So we need to preach those truths to our hearts, and we need to repent of the bitterness and censoriousness in our hearts if we're going to grow in this area of grace. Now, as for growing in truth— that is complicated as well. Some of us are bold with some Christian truths, but then completely quiet on others. We need to grow at speaking the whole truth in love, not just the parts that the culture is willing to hear.
1: Mm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people are just muting large swaths of Christian teaching so to avoid getting canceled by the culture. But Jesus didn't do that. He told the whole truth and nothing but the truth, whether people were excited to hear it or not. Yeah, I think we need to aspire to that kind of balance
0: if we're ever going to look like little Christs again in our day and age. We need to grow in grace and we need to grow in truth. But if we do, then I believe that Christianity will be very attractive to our culture in the years and decades ahead because they don't do grace very well anymore. They, they do shaming and outing and canceling, but they don't do grace very well. And truth isn't faring so well in the public square either.
1: So if we could get back to this, I think it would actually be very helpful. Mm, Agreed. Thanks for that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 27.
0: Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, here we have to admit that the New Testament speaks of prophets and prophecy in slightly different ways than does the Old Testament. We are, of course, prepared for that by having so recently heard Peter's important sermon on the day of Pentecost. In the opening of that speech, he said, This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Acts 2, 16 to 18. So Peter says in that sermon that the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church has changed The nature of prophecy. It will not be occasional anymore. It will be general and characteristic of the entire born again, spirit filled church. Now, that doesn't mean that everything a Christian says is inspired or authoritative. That seems to be why we have this special group of people called apostles. These apostolic prophets have an authority that is comparable to the Old Testament writing prophets. But It cannot be denied that there is a sense in which prophecy is generalized in the New Covenant community as a result of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter just said that. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, and they will prophesy. How can that be denied by any honest Bible reader? All God's people, saved by Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit, can speak the word of God with the help of the Spirit of God to the people of God for their encouragement and edification. They are, in some general sense, prophets. How can that be denied? And equally obvious is the fact that the apostles have a unique authority and inspiration that is unrepeatable. They are foundational. They say things that are written down and become Bible. So we have capital P prophets, call them apostolic prophets. And we have small P prophets, call them born-again, spirit-filled, Bible-reading, Bible-speaking Christians. Now, some are more gifted and some are less gifted, as we would expect. But all, in some sense, are capable of speaking a spirit directed word. Done. I have no idea how anyone could read the book of Acts and argue with that. We're looking at that in this very passage. Agabus is not an apostle, but he is a born-again Christian. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he's able to speak a word of specific encouragement that results in Christians in one place sharing generously with Christians in another place. That's not a new revelation. That is just very helpful guidance in a time of particular need. This should not be controversial. It really should not be. I think it is controversial because people sometimes are not carefully defining their terms. I I think if we're going to use the word prophecy, then we need to be very careful to assign to that word an appropriate New Testament definition. And I think it's probably controversial because we're overreacting to excesses that we have seen and experienced over the last two decades. But listen, folks, the simple facts here are impossible to dispute. According to the book of Acts, all truly born again, spirit-filled Christians are in some sense prophets and to a greater or lesser degree, depending on giftedness, exercise a prophetic ministry, not in an apostolic sense but in some sense, in the sense that they can speak the word of God to the people of God with the help and guidance and empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. Thanks be to God.
1: Pastor Paul, I want to go back to what you were talking about at the end of the program audio. This feels like something that is controversial, but that shouldn't be. And I think it is controversial, largely because not everybody is using this terminology in the same way. So I want to ask you some questions about prophecy to see if we can't clear this up, at at least to some degree. All right. Shoot. Okay, question number one. Are you saying that there are prophets in the church today who can provide fresh revelation, like a new Moses or a new apostle Peter? Is that what you're saying?
0: No. I believe that there is something unique and unrepeatable about the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. They spoke from God, for God, with authority. They are, in that sense, foundational. So I would point to Ephesians 2.20, where the Apostle Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Christ is the center or focus of the Bible. And the Old Testament prophets are pointing forward to him, and the New Testament apostles are pointing back to him, and that, collectively, is the authoritative foundation for the church. We can build up on that, but we can't build out from that. So no, no new revelation.
1: So no one today can say, I have a word from God that everyone needs to submit to. Is that correct?
0: Right. You, you can say, I feel the Holy Spirit prompting me to warn you about this course of action. But that's not authoritative. That's not like
1: 1 Peter 3.2 or Deuteronomy 6.4. And that's kind of what we see later on in the book of Acts with this Agabus guy, isn't it? Uh, later on, he warns Paul that great danger is waiting for him in Jerusalem. But Paul goes anyway. He doesn't treat Agabus' warning as binding.
0: Yes, exactly right. Look, the bottom line is that according to Acts 2, 17 to 18, on the other side of Pentecost, all truly saved believers are in some sense prophets. That cannot be argued. That's not something we should even be talking about. The text says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy.
1: That does seem pretty clear.
0: Yeah, it really does. So the issue is, in what sense, right? In, how, in what sense are people prophets? How does that function? How is it different than Old Testament prophecy and apostolic New Testament prophecy? How should it be used? How should it be governed? Those are good questions, but I don't think that despising prophecy or denying prophecy are legitimate options for Bible reading people.
1: All right. Yeah, that's good. And we'll come back to that topic again in a subsequent episode. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.